bring you greetings from the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness of this world and life. Prepare you the way of the Lord. Make straight every prepared path. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Tonight, we shall be looking at the basis for eternal rewards. We had looked at eternal rewards generally last week. We have seen that there definitely will be eternal rewards. The Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 16, verse 27, that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come in his glory with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. In Romans chapter 2, verse 6, the Bible says that he will render to each one according to his deeds. And in Revelation chapter 22, verse 12, the Lord himself said, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to give to each one according to his work. So definitely there will be eternal rewards. We had spoken about the manner of those things. We have spoken about parameters that will be used. We had spoken about some things in general. We even spoke about the three kinds of eternal rewards. We spoke about inheritances. We spoke about mansions. And we spoke about crowns. And we had mentioned that the issue of crowns will be discussed next week. We have also seen that eternal rewards will be given to the deserving. We had made mention of the fact that salvation is given to the undeserving. However, the work that brings the rewards is a matter of works after we have been saved by grace through faith and that each one's work will be tried by fire. Now, we want to focus on the basis for eternal rewards. What is the basis or what are the basis or criteria for eternal rewards? First, let's understand the reward system and how it works. And to be able to appreciate that, let's go to Matthew chapter 20 and read from verse 1 through to verse 15. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now, when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Again, he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour, and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing idle, and said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one hired us. He said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, you will receive. So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his stewards, Call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. And when those came who were hired about the eleventh hour, they each received a denarius. But when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more, and they likewise received each a denarius. And when they had received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour. And you made them equal to us, who have borne the burden and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? We see from this parable that in spite of the fact that people were engaged in the service of this landowner, which is a figure of how the kingdom of God is going to work, because he said this is how the kingdom of God works. When it came to the time of payment, they were paid the same amount, regardless of when they started the work. If you look at the parable, the only people that 
a negotiation was actually made with were the very first set of people. Every other person went to work not knowing what was going to be given to them. When it was time to pay at about 6 p.m., the people who came at 11th hour, which in the Jewish time system would be 5 p.m., which means they had only worked one hour. He paid them what he had promised to pay the first people who started in the morning. And when it came to their turn to be paid, they thought they would get more. He said, no, I agreed with you on this amount. That's what I'm paying you. It's up to me to pay whoever I want to pay what I want to pay. We see that the payment or rewards is the same regardless of when you came to Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 8, it is further reinforced when Paul wrote, he said, now he who plants and he who waters are one and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Each one is receiving a reward according to his labor of planting, according to his labor of watering. The job description may be different, but the goal is the same. In the parable that we just looked at, the goal was to work in the vineyard. Here, the goal is to make sure that there is a harvest. One man plants, another man waters. In John chapter 4, verse 36 to 38, the Lord Jesus Christ explained a similar thing to his disciples. In verse 36, it says, And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I have sent you to reap that for which you have not labored, Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. So there are many parts to completing a task. However, each part is rewarded equally, no matter what it is they did. In other words, there is no part that is greater than the other. If you understand the way the body works, there is the nose, there is the mouth, there are the ears, the hands, the feet, and so on and so forth. Each part of the body gets the same share. There is not one part that is more significant or more important than the other. Each one gets the same thing. No part is greater. The prophet is not greater than the pastor. The pastor is not greater than the apostle or the apostle is greater than the pastor. They are all the same. It's just that each one is doing his own work as assigned to him, his own task as assigned to him. In Matthew chapter 10, when the Lord Jesus Christ sent his disciples out, he also made this statement, verse 40 to 42. He said, he who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of the prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. Now, it's not as clear when we look at the New King James translation. So let's look at the easy-to-read translation. It says, whoever accepts you also accepts me. And whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. Whoever accepts a prophet because he is a prophet will get the same reward a prophet gets. And whoever accepts a godly person just because that person is godly will get the same reward a godly person gets. Whoever helps any of these little ones, because they are my followers, will definitely get a reward, even if they only give them a cup of cold water. Let's look at it in the message. It says, we are intimately linked in this harvest work. Anyone who accepts what you do, accepts me, the one who sent you. Anyone who accepts what I do, accepts my father who sent me. Accepting a messenger of God is as good as being God's messenger. 
accepting someone's help is as good as giving someone help. This is a large work I've called you into, but don't be overwhelmed by it. It's best to start small. Give a cool cup of water to someone who is thirsty, for instance. The smallest act of giving or receiving makes you a true apprentice. You won't lose out on a thing. So what's he saying here? The reward system is very, very interesting. It is such that if in the course of performing his function, you help a prophet because he is sent by God, the reward that is going to that prophet, you will get the same reward as the prophet is getting. So if you support, for example, a minister in the course of his gospel assignment, whatever that minister is going to get as a reward for that gospel assignment, you who helped him, who supported him, who contributed to the work, you who prayed for him, you are going to get the same reward as that minister of the gospel. Let's look at two examples. Let's look at soul winning, for instance. In soul winning, there are those who pray for the souls to be won. There are those who preach and the souls are won. There are those who handed tracts out for those people in advance. There are those who followed up after the souls were won and tried to make sure that they were established. There are those who taught the word of God to these souls to establish them firmly in the present truth. Then there are those who gave counsel to them so that they remained in the kingdom. Each one of these persons gets the same reward for that one soul. The prayer warrior gets the same reward as the man who preached, who gets the same reward as the man who followed up, who gets the same reward as the man who gave out tract, who gets the same reward as the man who taught these souls to be established, gets the same reward as the man who counseled when that soul was shaky and got them to stand in the present truth. So it's the same reward for that one soul. Then let's look at another example. Church planting, establishing a local assembly where the believers gather to worship God as a body, having been saved. The home that was given for that purpose, the homeowner gets a reward. If the property was rented, whoever paid the rent, for example, gets a reward. Then the people who got the place ready, who made sure that it was okay for them to gather to worship, get a reward. The people who paid for those who are laboring in that gathering to make sure that things are going okay, the pastor, for example, the deacons, the workforce, and so on and so forth. Each one gets a reward. Those who are directly involved in developing souls that have been gathered into that place, each one gets a reward. Each one gets the same reward. Because in the system that God is operating, everyone is important. Everyone is crucial. There is no one who has a greater right than the other person. So each one gets the same reward for accomplishing the task that God has given. So that's the very first thing that you must understand. That in this reward system, it's not as if the apostle gets more than the pastor. No, they get the same thing. However, you are going to see the difference because the level of work will be different. The apostle, for example, who has gone out and has won thousands of souls, is getting a reward for each of those souls. All the people who were variously involved in one way or another, not all of them were involved in all the thousand souls, but all those who were involved one way or another in each of those souls gets the same reward as that apostle is getting on that one soul. So if, for example, somebody was involved in supporting the apostle when he won 500 souls, that person gets a reward for each of the 500 souls. As the apostle is getting one reward, they are getting that one reward. 
The second thing that we want to look at, which is now what is going to get us into more of what we want to discuss now, are the parameters that will be used to judge. We mentioned in passing a few. We want to look at them in some depth at this time. The first one I want to talk about here are the resources that we use. Resources are provided for God's work. You see, God did not call you into his work and told you to go and look for something to do. God is not like Pharaoh. Remember one time when Pharaoh was upset that Moses was asking to let the people go. He said, these people, they don't have work to do. So they are thinking of going somewhere. Okay, this is what we are going to do. Let them go and look for straw to put in the mortar. The slaves had to be going all over the place looking for the resources. Not with God. God did not ask you to go and search for resources anywhere. God provides the resources. It is up to you to use those resources. There are people that God may have said, go and give to this work. If they didn't go to give to that work, too bad. They were a resource, but they did not make themselves available to be used. And so they get nothing. In fact, they are blacked out as far as that assignment is concerned. The question will be asked, did you use the resources that God put at your disposal? Or did you go and bring your own resources without divine approval. Remember we had mentioned when we're talking about repentance from dead works, that dead works are works that we did on our own. Good works are works that are initiated, inspired, and implemented by God through us. So resources are things that God had placed at our disposal that we used. God said, use this, use that, and so on and so forth. So a lot of the things that we are doing, unless God specifically asked you to do it, you need to be mindful of what you're doing. For example, when they were going to build the tabernacle in the wilderness, God specifically told Moses, go and announce to Israel and tell them, each one as is laid in your heart, give towards the work. And each one give as it was laid in their hearts. You cannot now pick that without God telling you and announce to your congregants, each one give as God has laid in your heart. If God did not ask you to do that, then you'll be running foul of the assignment because that is not a resource that God has made available. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1 to 5, Paul had written that when he came to Corinth, he came in great trepidation. He was only interested in one thing, to know Christ and him crucified before them. And that when he came, he came to preach in the power of the Spirit of God, that their faith might rest upon the Spirit of God and not on the eloquence of his speech. So the Spirit of God was a resource that Paul was given, and he used that resource in his preaching. He did not rely on his eloquence, if he had one at all. He relied on the power of the Holy Ghost to do the work that was given to him. In Acts chapter 10, verse 38, the Bible tells us how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. The Lord Jesus Christ used the resource of the Holy Ghost himself. So we have the Holy Ghost as a major resource that we can use, and we would do well to use that resource. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, the Bible says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The word of God, all scripture, is a resource that we use in building up souls, in getting men and women to be built up in the inner man for the work of God in the vineyard of God. In Romans 10, 17, the Bible says, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So faith 
is another resource, but it is born out of the word of God. You cannot be talking of exercising faith when it is not coming from God, when it is not something that is instituted by the word of God. So we must be very careful of how we are doing the work of God, what resource we are using. Even when it comes to the issue of money for the work of the gospel, you must be sure that it is money that God has asked you to take. Not just because somebody has made money available, you pounce on it and you begin to use. It may not count, even if the work in your eyes is a very great work. That is why the Bible makes it clear that God is not interested in stolen money. So when you are not careful about what you are receiving for the use of the work of God, you are running foul of doing a work that has not been sanctioned by God. Bible makes it clear, I think in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24 to 27, that those who are competing, there are rules to be followed in the competition. If you do not run this race according to the rules, you are going to be disqualified. So be careful the resource that you are using for the work of God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, the Bible says, We have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. The work of God must be done by God. He is using us, yes, but he must be the one doing it through us. Not we ourselves, just on our own volition, rising up and saying that this is what we are going to do. In chapter 10 of the same Second Corinthians, verse 12, Paul made a comment here. He said, for we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves. For they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. So we don't compare ourselves. I don't do something because Pastor A did it, because Prophet C did it, because Apostle D did it. No, you do what God has called you to do. There is no basis for comparison. And you cannot say, because you are doing something, others must do it the way you are doing it. No, we must come to terms and understand how God does his work through vessels. And he has resources that he has put in each one of us for the task that he has given to us to accomplish. Each task has the resource that God has for you to use for it. So if God gives you an assignment, know that he has provided the resources. In the place of prayer, you will get to find out what these resources are and they will come of their own. God will move people, will direct people to come. There are people who will join the work, who will be involved in that work, not because they like you or because you call them, but because God had assigned them for that task and they will do that task. So the first thing is, did you use the resources that God made available to you? If the answer is yes, fantastic. You get a reward for the assignment that you use those resources for. Secondly, the question will be asked, what was your disposition when you did your service? How did you do your service? Again, we turn to the scriptures. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 17, Paul writes about the preaching of Jesus. For if I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have been entrusted with a stewardship. What is he saying there? The work of God that you have been given resources to accomplish must be done willingly, not grudgingly. When you do it grudgingly, you have disqualified that particular work that you did grudgingly. So you do the work of God willingly. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, the Bible says, So let each one give as he proposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity. That is not by compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. How did you do the work? Cheerfully. Not that you were forced. Not that you were compelled. 
Not that you did it grudgingly, but you did it willingly, freely, and you did it cheerfully. These things are the things that count. God loves one who gives himself cheerfully. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10, the Bible tells us this, For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. The labor must be one done out of love. It must be a labor of love. It must be the work that you did because you loved God, because you had love for the brethren, because you had love for people. That's why you did what God said. That was a disposition in that work. You did it out of love. It's a labor of love, not a labor that comes out of hatred. You cannot preach the gospel out of hatred for people and be rewarded. No, you can't. It must be born out of love. The people who brought the gospel to Africa because they wanted to enslave Africans and to use the gospel for that purpose and in so doing took the Africans as slaves away and continued to preach that same gospel to them, telling them that they are enslaved. That fellow has no reward. In fact, he's most likely going to be in hell. So we have to be careful. Those people who are preaching the gospel for the sake of money, for the sake of fame, and so on and so forth, have no reward because their disposition is selfish, is not because they love God. So we looked at the resources. Did you use them? The Holy Spirit, the Word of God, faith, prayer, the name of Jesus, and so on and so forth. Remember what the Lord Jesus Christ said? Many will say, I prophesied in your name. I cast out demons in your name, and so on and so forth. The name of Jesus is a resource. But what was your disposition when you used it? Was it willingly? Freely? Remember the Lord Jesus Christ told the disciples when he sent them, I think in Matthew chapter 10, freely you have received, freely give. We don't charge for the gospel. All those people who are charging for the gospel, they already have their reward. You are not getting anything. That is if you ever get to stand before the Lord because you use the gospel for a selfish reason. You must do the work of God freely, willingly. You must do it cheerfully, gladly, with joy. The Bible tells us that even when we face persecution, we should face persecution with joy. What is important is the joy. The Bible says the joy of the Lord is your strength. He further strengthens us to pull through with the work that he has called us to do. And the labor must be a labor of love, not a labor of pain, not a labor of grief. Remember the man who was given a talent while others were given two and five, who hid his own. He told the master, he said, I know who you are, that you reap where you do not sow. So he was doing that work grudgingly. The Bible says they cast him into outer darkness. He was called an unprofitable and wicked servant. So your disposition when you were doing the work is going to be checked. Thirdly, what was the cost to you to serve? Let's read Second Samuel chapter 24, verse 18 to 24. There had been judgment over Jerusalem because of something that David had done, which was wrong. And people had been killed. Now, God had sent a word to David. So let's look at it from that place. And God, that's the prophet of David, came that day to David and said to him, Go up, erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arauna, the Jebusite. So David, according to the word of God, went up as the Lord commanded. Now Arauna looked and saw the king and his servants coming toward him. So Arauna went out and bowed before the king and with his face to the ground. Then Arauna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor from you, to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. Now Arauna said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up whatever seems good to him. Look, here are oxen for bond sacrifice and threshing implements and the yokes of the oxen for wood. All these, O king, Arana has given to the king. 
And Arana said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. Then the king said to Arana, No, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. Nor will I offer bond offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. What is the point we're trying to prove here? The work of God is going to cost you something. I know that in Christendom, we love freebies a lot. We love what people give us freely and everything. And there's nothing wrong in accepting those things. But there are times when you know that this work must take something out of my pocket. I must give something towards it. it must take something from me. It must cost me something. Not because I'm punishing myself, but because I love God. See, when you love someone, you want to be the one that is doing it. A man's wife who loves the man wants, it's not as if she cannot employ a house help to do the work. Even if the house is doing everything, she wants to be the one to cook what the husband will eat. She wants to be the one to serve the table for the husband to eat. Not because she cannot send the house girl to do it, but that is what she wants to do out of love for her husband, out of respect for her husband. So it's the same thing here. Out of love for God, out of regard and reverence for God, we want to pay the price of what it will cost us to do. The Lord Jesus Christ said that he came not only to serve, but to give himself a sacrifice for God in that he will give himself to be crucified. In Luke chapter 14, from verse 25 to 28, the Bible says, Now great multitudes went with him, that is with Jesus, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it. So you just don't start to say, I want to serve God when you have not considered the cost because it will cost you something. In Luke chapter 9 from verse 57, the Bible says, Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. If you are serving God because of accommodation, if you went to church and you were carrying pastor's Bible because you want the church to give you money for accommodation, you have missed it. He said, even I, the Son of Man, I don't even know where I'm going to lay my head. So if you are coming to serve because you think that when you are with me, you are going to stay in a five-star hotel, you've missed the point. In verse 59, it says, Then he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and preach the kingdom of God. Is it saying that you should not go and bury your father? No. But there are other things that you will want to do when you go and bury. You now want to sit down for the reading of the will. Meanwhile, the gospel will suffer. You want to clear this, you want to clear. So he's saying, Put the gospel first. That should be your priority over social obligations, over family obligations. That's what he meant in the first time in Luke 14 when he said, unless you hate your father, your mother, your wife, your brothers, your sisters, your children, yes, even your soul, the way you love God, it will seem like you hate yourself. It will seem like you hate your family members. That's what he's saying there. He's not asking you to hate them. He's saying that until you prioritize him as prime, he's going to occupy your entire space unless that is taking place, costing you so much. It's going to cost you friendships. It's going to cost you relationships until you are ready to count that cost that this thing is going to cost me so much. You're not ready to serve. You're not ready for a reward because they're going to look at what it costs you to serve. If it costs you nothing, you don't get anything. If you were riding on other people's work, that is, you made no effort on your own. That I'm not talking of human effort now. You expended nothing. 
Paul said, woe is me if I preach not the gospel. I would prefer to spend and be spent for the gospel. That's what we're trying to make here. Are you ready to spend and be spent for the sake of the gospel? Some people are ready to spend, but they don't want to be spent for the gospel. They're ready to send their money. That's what Arana was doing. Arana said, I will give you everything, but he's not ready to do the sacrifice. David said, don't worry, I will pay for it. I will not give to God something that does not cost me anything. Still on Luke chapter 9. Let's look at verse 61 and 62. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, no one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Once your hand is on the plow, you must look straight. Do not be distracted. That's why it's going to seem like you hate them at home. It's going to seem like you hate families. It's going to seem that like you hate your village. It's going to seem like you hate your nation. Because they'll be calling you to come and say, you say, sorry, I have a greater work to do. When they called Nehemiah to come for a conference, Sambalat and the others, Nehemiah said, I'm not coming down. I'm doing a great work. It's not everything that you respond to. Because of the work of God, be focused. We've seen the resources. Did you use the resources provided? Secondly, what was your disposition? Did you do it willingly, freely, cheerfully, and out of love for God? Number three, what did it cost you? Did you spend and were you spent for the sake of the gospel? Did you prioritize God above all? Now, fourthly, were you faithful in your assignment? In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2, the Bible says, It is expected in stewards that a man be found faithful. If you are going to serve God, it must be seen in you that you are found faithful. What does it mean to be faithful? The Lord Jesus gave us inkling in Matthew chapter 24, verse 45 to 51. He said, Who then is a faithful and wise servant, whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Note that, to give them food in due season. Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. They ask you to give food at this time, you gave it at that time. They ask you to give this particular menu, you gave it at that time. You are told to preach or to teach a particular subject, you teach it. Even though people are not happy with it, but you teach it. Even though people are not listening, you teach it. That is, as far as God is concerned, you are faithful. Others may look at you and say, what are you talking about? But you are doing what God has called you to do, faithfully. Verse 47, Assuredly I say to you, that he will make him ruler over all his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour that he is not aware of and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. An unfaithful servant is one who is not doing what he's been asked to do. Is one who is engaging in frivolities and revelries. Is one who is engaging in worldly things in the affairs of this life. Such a person is unfaithful. Faithfulness is about God giving you an assignment and, as a matter of speaking, going to sleep, knowing that it is done. In Luke chapter 16, reading from verse 10, the Bible tells us, He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. So it's not the size of the work. Faithfulness is a nature, is who you are. That is why before God begins to give you anything big, they say, oh, I want to go and preach to five million people. Have you preached to one person? Have you discipled one person? But you want to sit over a church of 5,000. Have you shown faithfulness in little? He who is faithful in what is least is faithful in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. So if you are not faithful in little, you cannot be faithful in much because it's a nature. In verse 11 says, therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? There are people who 
are not faithful at work, but they want to come to church and make us believe in a church meeting that they are faithful. No, we check what you are at home, at work, in the unrighteous mammon, in the things that do not require the sanctity, as it were, of God, in a manner of speaking. Because God is also interested in what you are doing in your office, in the marketplace, in your home. But he's saying, if you are not faithful in those areas, how can you be faithful in the work of God? You cannot be. For you to come to a church meeting and be acting as if you are faithful. Meanwhile, back home, you are not faithful. In the place of work, you are not faithful. My brother, you are not faithful. That is what is called eye service. You are trying to act as if you are a faithful brother. And people are saying, oh, that brother is hardworking. But in the office, it's a different report. You are known as somebody who steals, who comes late to work, and always giving an excuse, oh, I had night vigil. Why are you doing night vigil on the time of your employer? Then go and do your night vigil and look for work elsewhere. Go and do your own work and stop cheating on somebody else's time. At the end of the month, you expect them to pay you for the time that you did not work. And you want to use the gospel as a tool of blackmail. You don't get a reward for that. You're not rewarded for that at all. In verse 12, it says, and if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? Faithfulness is measured in what is another man's. In fact, a steward is one who handles or oversees or maintains what is someone else's own as though it were his. A Christian must be found to be faithful. The way you will run a company, if you are the MD, will be as though it were your private company. You are not going to run as though they are just paying me salary. Let me collect my salary. And go. No, you're going to be invested in it. And God is looking at all those things. Because if you were not faithful in your secular job, which is not secular, because God is interested in that assignment that he gave you to do in that office. If you are not faithful there, you are a poor witness for God. You must be faithful in whatever it is that God has called you to do. Whether it is in a church gathering or it is outside a church gathering. All that God's reason is your faithfulness in those things that he has committed into your hands. So if you have not been faithful in what's another man's own, God is not going to give you your own. You don't get a reward. And in verse 6 it says, no servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mom. You can't serve the two. So even when you are in your secular employment, your service is as unto the Lord. Number five, we've discussed this earlier. What was it that motivated you? What was the motive for doing what you were doing? In Matthew chapter six, verse one to four, take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound the trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret and your father who is in secret will himself reward you openly. So there's a reward for the activities that you're doing, the arms given, the support, and all, all those things. He says, don't go and blow a trumpet. Oh, see me, oh, I'm giving donations to motherless babies. I'm giving donations to orphans. I'm giving donations to the women. No. And he uses it. He says, don't let your left hand know what the right hand do. We know we do when we want to give money, especially when the money we want to give, we are ashamed of it. We will cover it. We say, no, we don't want the left hand to know. That's not what he's saying there. But when we have a fat word, we want to hold it so that everybody can see that we are giving money. You already have a reward. That's what they say. You are a show of, you are a hypocrite. 
You just want to be seen. You want men to know that you are doing this thing. He says you already have a reward. The reward that God is going to give you is given because you did what you were called to do. The motivation was because you wanted to do it to honor God. In verse 5 to 8, it says, And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your father who is in the secret place, and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for the things that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. What is he saying here? Even in prayer, you don't announce it. If you go to verse 16 to 18, he's talking about fasting there. The same thing, when you are fasting, don't let people know that you are fasting. So all these announcements that we are making and we are disturbing the airwaves that we are fasting, that we are praying, has no reward. No reward. Because a lot of it is for sure. Because a church A is fasting every year, you too, you are fasting. Church A does 40 days, you now want to do 60 days. That's not it. It's not competition. It must be from God. Is God asking us to do this thing that we are announcing the way we are announcing them? The Bible does not support this manner of doing things. In Galatians chapter 6, from verse 7 to 10, the Bible says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will reap. You may deceive yourself, but you can't deceive God. For he who sows to his flesh, that is, he wants to be known. He wants to be seen. He wants gain. He wants people to know that I'm praying. I'm a prayer warrior. I'm a faster. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. He says, Will of the flesh reap corruption. That is death. Is going to hell. But he who sows to the spirit will of the spirit reap everlasting life. That is, whatever you are doing is guided by the spirit of God, is led by the spirit of God. It may not be known. People may not know. It's not everybody that will be rewarded that comes onto the social media or mass media or some public place to speak. There are people who are doing a work quietly that nobody sees, nobody knows. But what they are doing in the background is what is moving a lot of the work that you see today. There are people who are praying and nobody knows that they are praying. They pray day and night in their closets for the work of God to advance. No publicity, nothing. Just one person. And they are moving the work of God forward. They're not advertising it. They're not making noise about what they are doing or what they are not doing. But you'll be shocked when we get to heaven. The kind of people that will be getting rewards. And you'll be wondering, where was this fellow? We never heard of this fellow. And we were in the world at the same time. Because they were doing their work quiet. They were sowing to the spirit. In verse 9 it says, And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. You cannot be doing the work of God and then midstream you stop. No! You must follow through. Don't allow anything to discourage you. I remember once the Spirit of God told me, anything that brings discouragement is not of God. And that has helped me a lot. God cannot discourage you. God will encourage you to do His work. If God does not want you to do something, he will tell you, don't do it. He's not going to use discouragement to stop you from doing it. Satan is the one who discourages. God encourages. In verse 10, it says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith, all men, whether they are believers or not, but particularly those who are believers. So it will be checked. Was your motive out of love for God? Was your motive because you wanted people to know what you are doing? Was your motive because you wanted to be seen like the hypocrites that, oh, we are doing something? Then you have your reward. You are not going to get a reward in eternity. Eternal rewards do not function on those places. Then when you were doing what it was that you were doing, what was the motivation? Was it the flesh or was it the spirit of God? 
if the Spirit of God is not the motivation, remember we said when we're talking of good works, we said God must initiate, God must inspire. That's the motivation. God must inspire that work. Was it inspired by God or was it inspired by the flesh? Was it inspired by a decision to want to be known? Was it inspired so that people can know that, oh, I'm doing this thing? Then you don't get a reward eternally. Eternal reward is because it was inspired by the Spirit of God. Finally, what sort of work is it? Is it a work of gold? Is it a work of silver? Is it a work of straw, wood, or hay? In Luke chapter 14, verse 12 to 14, then he, uh, that's Lord Jesus Christ, also said to him who invited him, when you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So if what you are doing is something that you can be paid for here on the earth is a work of straw, wood, hey, it will be burnt up. But this kind of work that you are doing, not expecting a reward, not expecting something to be done for you in return here on the earth is a work of gold, silver, precious stones. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 to 42, it says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Just give them. Somebody hurts you, take it. Don't try to avenge. I've heard a lot of people talk, oh, God is a God of vengeance, so you should pray for vengeance. God said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Do not avenge yourself. That is, don't pray for it. I will avenge, not you. From 43 to 48, he says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Let us stop this cursing, 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 cursing. Do good. Bless them. Even your enemies, love them. That you may be sons of your father. You are not a son of God. You're not a child of God if all you do is to curse. Even if you're a pastor, even if you're a bishop, if that's all you're doing, you're not a child of God. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even tackle, let us do the same. And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even tackle, let us do so. Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your father in heaven is perfect. These are rudimentary things, fundamental things, but they are things that we must understand. Your enemy is hungry, feed him. You recall there was one incident in which some people came to arrest Elisha and Elisha prayed, they were blindfolded and Elisha took them to Samaria, the capital of northern Israel and submitted them to the king and the king wanted to kill him. He said, no, 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 feed them. He was leaving the scriptures. What were, did you do it according to my word? It is when you are in the flesh that you get so angry you want to curse. Because what you cannot do, you think that you can pray and force God to do what God does not want to do. You can't do that. All those prayer of vengeance, where has it ended? All those prayer of my enemies die by fire, where has it ended? In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 to 5, it says, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, not this church, in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. These people were suffering. These people were poor. But with joy, they gave. 
He said, for I bear witness according to the ability. Yes, and beyond the ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. This is a work of gold. They didn't have. They were suffering, yet freely willingly they gave. You see, all those teachings that we are teaching people to give, so it will pain them, it will pinch them, that's not of God. It must come from within. They must freely and willingly want to give. You are not there to coerce them into parting with the little resources that they have. Let them do it of their own accord. And Paul said, we didn't even want to take it from them, but they forced us. They implored us. They beseeched us. They begged us. They pleaded with us. They compelled us to take it from them. Why? It came from their heart, even though they had affliction, even though they were poor. I have noticed that in the things of God, the poor are the ones who give more than the rich. In Mark chapter 12, 41 to 44, we don't have time to read it, but it's the story of the widow's might. The Lord Jesus Christ sat over against where people were casting money into treasury. As people were giving, a widow came and dropped two mites. And the Lord told the disciples, do you see that widow who dropped two mites? She is the one who has given the most. How did you judge that? He said, because that is all she had. Those two mites were all that she had. She could have dropped one, but she didn't drop one. She dropped the two, believing God to take care of her. He said, but those ones, out of the abundance of what they had, they gave. It's not as if what they did was bad, but he's saying that when it comes to rewards, that woman gets more than any other person. Because in God's judgment, after you have given to God, the question is, how much do you have left? That woman had nothing left. The others had something left. Some had so much more left. For example, a man who is a billionaire, who gives a million, he has not given much as far as God is concerned because he still has 999 million left. But the man who has a million and gives a million, he's given everything. And not because he was compelled to give, but because out of love of God, he gave. Brethren, as I close, I want to plead with us to change our disposition and understand that there are rewards. We are going to be rewarded. And there are criteria for these rewards. You must understand that you are not safe to just walk around and sit in a pew, go to church every Sunday, carry a Bible, and then you go home and do as you like. No, you are saved to serve. Why is it that you didn't get saved and die? Because there's something to be done here on there. That's why you are still breathing and alive. If after much prodding, you are not doing anything, you are occupying space, you can as well go. They can take you away. Because you're not doing anything. Being a Christian is more than attending a church meeting. Being a Christian is more than carrying a Bible and going to church every Sunday. Being a Christian is living like Christ wants you to live in the marketplace, in your home, in your neighborhood. Not just looking godly in a church meeting. No! My prayer is that we'll be reasonably challenged by what we have heard. And understand that God is not unjust to forget your labor of love. Understand that God loves a cheerful giver. That God appreciates those who willingly and freely surrender and submit themselves to the service of Almighty God. Those who use the resources that God has placed as their disposal, even if they may not have what others have, but the little that God has given to them, they are utilizing it. God is interested in those who are serving him faithfully. Those who will do what he wants them to do at the time he wants them to do it. Those whose service is involving themselves, not just what they have, but they themselves are involved in that service. By the grace of God, next week we shall be looking at crowns as eternal rewards. Until then, God bless you.